Welcome to my mommy's podcast. Do you love the taste and the benefits of bone broth, but don't love how time-consuming it is to make? With the time you spend sourcing the best ingredients and then simmering it for hours on end on the stove, Kettle and Fire solves that problem with their bone broth. So they use only bones from 100% grass-fed pasture-raised cattle that are never given hormones and antibiotics. It's also unique because they focus on bones that are especially high in collagen, which is one of the healthiest things you can put in your body. Another great thing about them is they use really eco-friendly minimal packaging and their bone broth is non-perishable. So unlike many bone broths on the market, it ships without the need for refrigeration, which is also much more eco-friendly. It is available in many stores, so definitely check your local area. But if it's not, like it isn't for me, you can order it online and have it shipped to your door, which is what I do. So to check it out and to find out more about why their bone broth is so wonderful, go to kettleandfire.com forward slash wellness mama. This episode is sponsored by Plant Therapy. There are so many options out there when it comes to essential oils, and I've used a lot of them over the years. Now I most often turn to Plant Therapy because they have a large assortment of organic oils and a whole lot of kid-safe blends, and they also have really good prices. The cool thing is their oils have no additives or synthetic ingredients like a lot of oils do, and they publish their testing results for all of their oils so you can verify the quality. I've talked a lot about the safe use of essential oils, and their KidSafe blends are formulated by Robert Tisserand, who is largely considered one of the foremost experts in essential oil safety, so I feel like I can trust him. If you want to check them out, especially right now, they're running some big sales that are changing daily. Go to wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash oils to get all the current discounts. Hi, and welcome to the Healthy Mamas Podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com, and I'm here today with a guest who was requested many, many times. Dr. Kelly Brogan is a Manhattan-based holistics women health psychiatrist. She's the author of the best-selling book, A Mind of, Our, of Your Own, and she's also uh, she has psychiatric training from NYU Medical Center, and she has a specialty in this area, especially with women. She's board certified in psychiatry, psychosomatic medicine, and integrative holistic medicine, and she really focuses on finding the root cause of the symptoms and syndromes and fixing the problem. So she's been uh, featured on pretty much every media that I can think of. She's very very well read and well spoken. And I know that she's going to have answers for a lot of you today. So Dr. Brogan, welcome. Thanks for being here. It's really an honor to be here and to close this loop. I'm, I'm a huge fan, total, total pleasure to be here. I think it's going to be a great conversation. And I feel like it's one that it'll be fun for me to delve into. I have never struggled personally with any kind of like mental health issue, but I have a couple close friends who have. And I feel like especially for women, it's a taboo topic. It's funny to me, like the contrast, I'll get random people in the grocery store who ask me if I'm done having kids or like why I like to have sex so much. And that's apparently not off the table. But when it comes to mental health or for women, also miscarriage, I feel like there's these areas that we um, feel like we can't talk about and that probably there's a lot of deep pain for a lot of people and it would help to talk through. And I know that you have no problem broaching these topics. And I want to delve in today. So to start today, can we hear a little bit about your background and how you got into this area in the first place? Yeah. So I come from, you know, a very conventional upbringing. (laughs) So this, you know, sort of a lot of what I have come on to later in my life is very, very new to me. I didn't grow up in a very conscious, wellness-oriented family, you know, certainly wasn't raised by Bohemians. And in any way, and my mom is from Italy 
And so I was raised the way any child of an immigrant is where, you know, you become a doctor or a lawyer, you make a lot of money and you follow the rules. You know, that's, that was sort of the edict. And so I very much believed in, you know, conventional medicine. I was a neuroscience major in um, college at MIT. And strangely, actually, it's not so strange, but MIT has a big issue with suicide. Um, And I volunteered on a suicide hotline while I was in college. I don't know what attracted me to, you know, to do that in my spare time, but I did. And I was left with the impression, you know, sort of dovetailing with my major that we had cracked the code of human behavior, right? So we have the science, we have the resources, and we just need to get people to treatment. We need more and more uh, accessibility around medication-based treatments. And so I, I literally went to medical school to learn how to prescribe psychiatric medication. And I've always been a feminist, you know, from when I was like a kid, maybe even in the womb, I don't know. But I oriented myself around what I now see as a more sort of masculinized femininity, uh, where I really felt very strongly that women needed to play in the same game as men and win. Uh, and so I was, you know, very much sort of pro elective C-sections and pro, you know, Gardasil vaccine, you know, for HPV and pro long-term birth control for as many years as you needed it. Um, and I, of course, you know, I don't know, I, I found that it was probably an entitlement for women to take psychiatric medications at any time in any amount and throughout their pregnancies and breastfeeding. So believe it or not, um, I was one of the first 300 uh, psychiatrists in the world to specialize in medicating pregnant and breastfeeding women. Uh, Now we have one in four women of reproductive age on psychotropic medication, probably many people listening. And it makes sense that people have made that choice because as you mention, um, you know, we have been led to believe that struggle and grief and um, shifts and changes in behavior, uh, that, you know, intense fatigue and inattention, that all of these things are bad, right? And that they're evidence of dysfunction. And we can talk about how sort of the disease-based model of medicine is evolving and changing. But suffice it to say that I came from that mentality, very much a believer in conventional medicine. And it was through my own experience uh, with a diagnosis of Hashimoto's, an autoimmune thyroid condition, after my first pregnancy, having never had a health problem ever before in my life, despite totally trashing my body, literally eating McDonald's and candy every single day, um, that I opted for a naturopathic solution because I knew what conventional medicine had to offer. I knew that I would be on Synthroid for the rest of my life, feeling largely like crap. And I wanted out. So I, you know, went the naturopathic route. I put my uh, condition into full remission on paper and it sort of, I don't know, it was the beginning of an awakening for me where I applied all of my science sort of oriented interests. I've always been a science nut. I've been spending hours every Saturday of my life on PubMed uh, for 14 years. And so I just switched directions and I said, okay, this is what I was taught in my training, you know, very expensive Ivy League training. And I'm going to now look for myself and, you know, see what it was that I wasn't spoon fed. And what I learned was really quite shocking, actually enraging in in a lot of the phases of my uh, exploratory research. And it drove me to a perspective on pharmaceutical medicine 
that is, of course, considered quite radical at this point. But, you know, man, am I glad that happened because the outcomes that I have in my practice today, I literally can't publish them fast enough. Um, it's, you know, a, a type of, um, I don't know, perspective on health and healing that we're never told about, uh, you know, in terms of what's possible. And I'm very honored, you know, to, to sort of witness this every single day in my office and now, you know, bring it out into the world on a greater scale. So that's pretty much what I'm here to talk about is, you know, sort of what you may not know is possible around the resolution of chronic illness. I love that. And I love that there's someone else who spends their weekends on PubMed. I thought you obviously have the training to probably better interpret the studies, but I find them super fascinating. But I'm still stuck on what you said that one in four women is medicated. And I I did not actually know that number um, until reading your information. And I was shocked. That's to me so staggering. If it was anything else, I feel like we'd be talking about an epidemic and there should be much more awareness and knowledge around this. So what do you think are some of the factors that are causing this? And what do you think is, where's the gap in the traditional approach? Why are, why are we seeing such high levels and is it fixing anyone? It's a perfect question. And in fact, you know, a part of the sort of story that I didn't mention answers that question, which is that uh, in 2010, I was given a book. So this was, you know, right after I had my Hashimoto's healing experience that of course, you know, conventional medicine would say is not even possible. And I was given this book called Anatomy of an Epidemic by investigative journalist, Robert Whitaker. And I read the book and I remember literally crying on the subway uh, because I finished the book and my entire world crumbled in front of my eyes. Like literally everything I had ever learned about my own specialty, I was embarking, you know, into private practice on my own, I had to throw out. And because of that book, and I'll tell you what its assertion, you know, was, is uh, I put down my prescription pad and I never started a patient on medication again. And that was, you know, I had to throw away my entire training. So obviously I had to be ready to do that. And I was ready to do that because I had already come on to another path, right? But many, many prescribers and my own friends have read that book and it didn't change anything for them. So what that book says is through the analysis of non-industry funded literature. So, so, so medical studies that the pharmaceutical industry did not themselves pay for. Okay. He seeks to answer you know, one question, which is if we have more and more incidents of quote unquote mental illness, right? So depression is the leading cause of disability, according to the WHO in the world. So it's only becoming more and more prevalent. How is it that that incidence is escalating when we have more and more access to treatment, right? Shouldn't there be more treatment, right? One in four women being treated, Shouldn't there be more treatment and less disability? Isn't that the point of treatment? And what he argues, um, not only for depression, but for ADHD and schizophrenia and mood disorders, uh, generally like bipolar disorder, what he argues is actually that the very treatment itself is perpetuating chronic illness, where in its natural history in the past, you know, we can study from the 1930s and 40s, for example, uh, this might have been a one episode experience that even spontaneously resolved. Now we are generating epidemics of chronic mental illness and associated disability through the medication, you know, choices that we are making. That's so provocative. You know, that's like the most controversial conclusion you could come to because it requires letting go of this notion that medications are safe and effective. 
you know, when it comes to psychiatry. And of course, I've extrapolated this conversation into other disciplines of medicine, looking at, you know, antibiotics, et cetera. But uh, it's provocative, but it's hard to argue with what the science states, you know, which is pretty clear. And I, you know, I believe in informed consent. I believe that, you know, everyone should be free to make their own decisions around the medicine that makes sense to them. But they can only make those decisions when they have a full picture of the available information. And it was very clear to me that I hadn't been providing that to the patients I had treated up until that point. Gotcha. So take us through this. I have no experience with this. So I'm genuinely curious if someone presents with these symptoms and goes to, for instance, just a conventional doctor, um, what would kind of be the process that a woman would be taken through and what would be she most likely to be prescribed? So here's the process. It's disarmingly uh, abrupt. So actually, most psychotropic medications are prescribed by primary care doctors or internists, more than 60% of them. So you might show up to your primary care doctor and let's say you're just, something is just off, right? You're tired. You know, you can't concentrate. You're feeling like super unmotivated and irritable. Maybe you're having sleep issues. You know, maybe you've gained 15 pounds and you're pretty constipated. You've noticed you're also losing a bunch of hair. Generally, you just are at the sort of end of your rope and you get to the office and you're so relieved to have somebody pay attention to your, the complex issues you're struggling with for 10 minutes that you start crying in the office. The simplest, the Occam's razor here, the simplest solution that this doctor can offer you because doctors by and large are not bad people. They want to help, but they have a very small toolkit. In fact, it's basically like a one tool kit, right? So they pretty much can only offer a prescription. And you will get that prescription, whether it's from an internist or a psychiatrist, sometimes after a 10 minute conversation. So it's important to remember that in psychiatry and psychiatric diagnosis, we don't have blood tests, we don't have MRIs, we don't have, you know, any sort of EEGs or special scans that we do. There's no objective diagnosis. So it's really a conversation. I mean, it could be as simple as like a quiz, something like you would find in Cosmo magazine or something. That's literally how a diagnosis is rendered in this field. And it's totally subjective. So, and and this has been borne out in, you know, in research from many decades ago where they sent actors in acting crazy in an emergency room and they all left uh, with prescriptions or were institutionalized. So this is sort of what we're dealing with and we're calling it science. Um, and unfortunately, just because it's all that we have available doesn't mean that it's really what's in the best interest of people who whose struggles are very real. You know, we're sick in ways that are very complex today uh, because we are dealing with a, a critical burden of, you know, toxicant exposure, a spe- special kind of chronic stress. We're feeling divorced from our communities, from our families, even from our own like souls, you know? and. And so we're struggling. And when a doctor has 10 minutes and no specific tools or training to really dig deep into the personal experience of your journey, then it makes a lot of sense that they would just try to take the edge off and offer you something that seems like a reasonable solution. That makes sense. So understanding what you know now, if someone came to you, how would the approach differ? Because listening to the symptoms you just named, in my head at least, I'm like, well, that's to me, like, why aren't they checking their thyroid? Those are some of the same things I had. And I feel like that when I don't, you know, get enough omega threes and don't get enough sleep, like, why aren't they addressing this? So what's your understanding of that now? How does that differ? So here's where, when you said that you don't have the training to interpret scientific literature, it's absolutely, that's absolutely false. You know, 
infinitely more uh, as a wellness expert than I would say 99.9% of trained physicians out there. And, and part of this phenomenon is that it takes, according to you know, statistical research, uh, 17 years for what is in the primary medical literature to trickle down into a gold standard clinical practice. So that you know, sort of brain gap, so to speak, uh, is that's a generation, you know, that's an extraordinary long period of time. So what happens is that, you know, your lovely, wonderful, well-intentioned doctor is practicing antiquated medicine. And one of the many ways in which conventional medicine is behind the times is in understanding the complexity of um, the immune system and its seat in the gut right? And how these um, related symptoms, you know, like what we're talking about, Hashimoto's or other kinds of autoimmune conditions uh, that of course have greater prevalence in women, how they can manifest psychiatrically, right? So if you don't know what to look for, um, and that's why I do believe in, you know, a basic screening if you have complex symptoms, because you know how to look for, uh, you know, the evidence of Hashimoto's in, in, in lab work, but actually, uh, conventional doctors are not only not trained in how to look for, um, antibodies routinely, how to look for free thyroid hormones, or maybe even a reverse T3. They're not trained to look at that. They're trained to interpret only the reference range, but then they are also, um, in no way equipped to make any sort of meaningful recommendations around autoimmune conditions. Autoimmune conditions weren't even really a part of my medical training and I am not that old. <laughs> so this is, um, where lifestyle-based illnesses are outpacing conventional medicine's ability to even uh, sort of meet the demand diagnostically, let alone therapeutically. So when I meet with a patient, I am very interested in what are some of the potential totally reversible physiologic imbalances that could lead you to a psychiatric prescription. I find that there are four or five very common ones uh, and for some patients, it's important to identify what those are. Sometimes you can just, you know, take on a healing protocol and like, who cares? Because when you're feeling better, you're feeling better. And that's going to put you in a tremendous position to come off of medication if you happen to be on it or to avoid it if you'd like to, um, regardless of what was driving it. But I would say that some of the most, these are not going to surprise you. Some of the most common imbalances include uh, probably number one is uh, dysglycemia or blood sugar imbalance, right? So I've had patients who come to my office with anything from six panic attacks a day to diagnoses of, um, you know, uh, complex insomnia to chronic fatigue. And all that they had was a natural physiologic response to, you know, too much sugar, processed sugar consumption. And it was driving a, a seemingly psychiatric constellation of symptoms. And as you well know, it's, this is reversible sometimes within, you know, weeks. So, you know, blood sugar imbalance is one. I think it's probably no, no coincidence that I uh, was diagnosed with Hashimoto's myself because it helped me to plumb the literature that is very robust, suggesting that everything from postpartum psychosis to, you know, psychotic depression to suicidality, um, to bipolar disorder has significant correlation at worst and causation at, at, you know, sort of most meaningful 
around the sort of complexity of thyroid function and its interface with the immune system. So if you know that little fact, then you are going to, of course, as you suggested, first look for evidence of antibodies. We actually know from the literature that when there are antibodies, even if the hormones look totally cool, that that alone is enough to generate what we might call psychiatric symptoms. So it matters, right? And what you do about it, of course, matters in terms of lifestyle-based healing. So there's that one. Um, another one is uh, growing literature that suggests that um, antigenic foods like wheat and um, dairy may be specifically problematic on a brain-based level for a subpopulation. And I personally don't you know, test, do food allergy testing or anything along those lines because I think it can be a lot easier and more direct and empowering, frankly, to just sort of engage in, in a structured elimination and observe for yourself you know, what, um, you notice. And this is not like, uh, you know, sort of for the worried. Well, I mean, I have even on my blog published cases, particularly a, a one recent one from the new England journal is a 37 year old woman who was so psychotic that her family took out a restraining order on her. She was rendered homeless and all that she had was celiac disease. <laughs> so once they finally, after medicating her for a year, once they finally diagnosed her on intestinal biopsy with celiac disease, they put her on a strict gluten-free diet for three months and she was like totally back to her normal self. So this is not a minor contributor. I mean, this can masquerade as some pretty severe illness. And I would say, you know, the last category to really consider was where most of my learning came from in my own independent research. Um, which was around medication um, side effects. So, you know, when it comes to medications, unfortunately, there's sort of no free lunch is what I've learned. And, you know, where there might be a desirable effect of a medication, whether it's a painkiller or an acid blocker or, you know, birth control pill, the nature of the side effects that manifest for you personally is a bit of Russian roulette. You know, we know what's common and we know what's rare. But something that's rare, if it happens to you, you didn't care that it was rare, right? And so to understand that many, many um, routine medications actually have the potential to have very significant psychiatric side effects, whether that's cognitive changes, behavioral changes, mood changes, is important because otherwise you could end up taking another medication, like if you're on birth control and you're having psychiatric side effects, you might end up on an antidepressant, even though the root cause of your issue was the birth control, which you may be taking because of hormonal imbalance. And the root cause of that is something resolvable through lifestyle changes. So it's just important to have this awareness. If you are finding yourself getting put into a category of, you know, sort of psychiatric labeling or considering that you might have a mental illness because the potential for total and complete reversal, I believe is, you know, the sort of the sky's the limit. I don't think that there's a person on earth who can't heal what is manifesting as mental um, illness symptoms if they believe it's possible and they have the wherewithal to commit to lifestyle change. That's the conclusion I've come to. 
Yeah, I definitely want to delve into that. And I think that's so important what you just said. It doesn't matter if it's rare, if it happens to you, because that really hit me with, um, I had placenta preview with my third child and I always like glazed over those sections in the book and I never read anything about C-sections because I'm like, well, I'm never going to have one, obviously, until I did. And it didn't matter that that was like a one in 10,000 chance because it happened to me. Exactly. Right. And so this is where personalized medicine, you know, is the wave of the future. And unfortunately, in the conventional model, there's not, we just aren't trained to think that way, right? We're trained to think of you as, you know, you're, you're the cirrhosis in room 104, you know, it's, it's a disease based model. And we're learning that if we really begin to look at an individualized, um, sort of application of the available science, people have experiences that are more empowering to them, um, that they can heal from more quickly and, you know, sort of integrate into their life path more meaningfully. Yeah. I think that's really powerful that you look at these are, these are potentially very big symptoms, but they're not necessarily the root of the problem. I think that's super important. And I agree with you. I think most doctors do mean well, and like you wouldn't make it through all those years of school if you didn't have a desire to help people. And unfortunately I've met a few though that have that um, I've seen the coffee mug and they have that the attitude like don't confuse your Google search with my medical degree and they kind of like even like poo poo the idea of informed consent and I'm always like no don't confuse your medical degree with uh, like me not having a right to my own bodily autonomy right now but I think I think this is super super important and I want to go deep here so what are some of the ways that you're seeing the outcomes because from reading through your blog you are having amazing results and as I said I have friends who are struggling with um, depression or these different, especially postpartum depression. And it is a very real thing. Like they're, what they're going through is real, but they also may be not getting the best solution. So can you talk to that on a deeper level? Absolutely. I mean, this is why I wake up every single day because I, you know, I literally have what I think is the best, the best job in the world. And I certainly didn't feel that way when I was prescribing, you know, my specialization, as I mentioned, was in, um, pregnancy and postpartum. And so I would say the bulk of my patients is particularly early on were labeled with postpartum depression and, and many of them were, were medicated. Um, it's interesting because there are actually only three randomized trials of antidepressants in the postpartum window, right? So we're just sort of assuming and extrapolating from other assumptions and extrapolations around medication for depression in this very special population, you know, what is going on physiologically, again, from an immune standpoint, from an endocrine standpoint, that is totally unacknowledged by psychiatry as a branch of medicine. I mean, we don't get educated about hormones and immune function. I mean, it's just not a part of psychiatric awareness. Unfortunately, considering a whole branch of medicine called psychoneuroimmunology is 20 years old, you know, this is not newfangled stuff, but we don't learn about it. And so that person is, is looking at a postpartum woman as just basically another, you know, case of major depressive disorder that happens to be happening postpartum, you know, and that's absolutely not the case. I mean, the, the adaptation back to optimal physiology, uh, postpartum is becoming more and more complex. And I think it's probably part of the body burden that we're taking on intergenerationally, um, that makes it more challenging for us to bounce back after we have built a human being in our bodies, you know, than it might've been two to 300 years ago. So there's a very real physiologic component, not to mention even just, um, the emergence of autoimmune conditions, postpartum that masquerade psychiatrically. Right. But then I believe that there are other, 
elements, you know, as I have delved into sort of understanding how we've evolved and what we did differently ancestrally than we do now, uh, just sort of longing for this kind of wisdom, it's become really apparent to me that, you know, I practice in Manhattan, uh, that we're raising babies as women in a way that has never been attempted before in human history, right? Like if you think about it, I don't think a woman in human history was ever alone with a baby or babies, okay? That would have been a major signal of like bodily, you know, threat, right? If, if a woman was ever alone somehow with her baby because we are always and have always been community-oriented tribal people. And we always had many, many eyes around us, many, many hands um, to, to, to help us. And particularly, you know, a woman who has recently given birth, you know, there was an entire village there of, of, you know, sisters, cousins, aunts, friends to support that process. So when you are, you know, in your Brooklyn apartment by yourself for eight hours with your newborn and you have no idea what you're doing, um, you have no support around your own self-care, should we pathologize the fact that that there's some pretty major alarm bells going off in that woman's body, mind, and spirit? I don't know. Seems to me like maybe that's a sign and a signal, an invitation to, to you know to to take a look at what's out of balance here and what could be you know better um, offered, what could, kind of support could be manifested. But so that's sort of the whole cultural context is totally ignored as well. Um, so, you know, when it comes to the question of, and I get this question a lot, well, that's interesting. And, you know, of course that makes sense. And, you know, you do want to look at the lifestyle factors and try to, uh, optimize them over time. But obviously if someone's really struggling, they need medication, right? So that's the question that of course I, I get, and it's such an embedded assumption uh, and of course, as I mentioned, it was my assumption as well. I mean, it was my assumption for the greater part of my <laughs> conventional career uh, that I would have considered no other alternative as being even remotely um, legitimate and, of course, would have assumed it was a reckless thing not to prescribe. But what has led me to the conclusion um, that beginning with medication as a first-line intervention um, you know, sort of that there, that there are significant flaws in, in that thinking is actually the scientific literature itself, right? So I've had my own sort of process of awakening and, you know, sort of spiritual rebirth over the past, you know, I don't know, almost 10 years, but that just gives color to the, the science that I have explored, which suggests that actually the efficacy of these medications isn't what we are told it is. Uh, and that the safety of these medications is absolutely not disclosed to the average patient. And there are some pretty alarming things that I have learned um, that led me to, to put down my prescription pad. But that's all um, secondary to the fact that the outcomes that I have seen in my own practice and online program since committing to this non-medication orientation literally blow me away every day. Because, you know, when I first started down this path, I didn't know if, I just knew that I recovered myself and I knew I was told that that wasn't possible. Okay. So with that in mind, 
I was embarking down this path, you know, with, with women who were curious, but they certainly didn't have much reason to be confident in my approach because I didn't know what I was doing either, you know, now, this is a humble origins. But over time, you know, I've refined and tested and perhaps, I don't know, you know, perfected for some, you know, some ready, willing and able women, a protocol that seems to be a slam dunk. And I would preface, you know, what I'm saying with, one very important caveat, which is that you must believe that this is possible. You must believe that you are not, you know, fundamentally, you know, a psychiatric patient, you know, a mental case for life. You must believe that your body has the capacity to heal that you were never told, you know, was possible. And you must believe that whatever you encounter in your life in the darker realms, right? So around struggle and suffering and grief and pain, that that's a part of the human experience. All of those uh, principles have to be at play in order for this to work. And if they are, it always works. So the mindset and the belief is non-negotiable ingredient. And when it's there, it's almost the um, assurance of the outcome you most desire. And, you know, so what I have found is that I thought at one point um, that mental illness was a genetic problem, right? Your aunt has schizophrenia, your cousin has schizophrenia, you know, what if after, you know, you have a baby, you go crazy, right? It's in your family. Or, you know, your, your dad has alcoholism and your uncle is a heroin addict, so probably you're going to be an addict of some kind too. This is the um, genetic determinism model that underpins conventional thinking around health and disease. It's, it's, it's through every single discipline. And there's some appeal to that, right? Because it sort of takes the responsibility out of your hands. If, you're, if what you eat doesn't matter, if what you think doesn't matter, if your toxic exposures don't matter, um, because it's you know genetically written, and well, it's a disease and you just got to manage it. There's nothing you can do about it. Then you sort of get validated, you know, uh, in your struggle. Uh, and then you also sort of just have to follow the rules, right? But there's nothing in there that says, no, actually, you have to take responsibility for this. And if you do that, which is really hard, but if you do that, then you have the potential to be basically reborn as a human. You have the potential to heal and evolve, um, on your personal trajectory in ways that you never, ever thought were, were possible. So isn't that awesome? You know, but what I find is that a lot of people resist that, right? They resist this idea that it's not genetic or that it's not a chemical imbalance because it in some ways puts the ball back in their court to make some pretty radical changes to their lives, you know, and those changes start with self-care uh, and a real commitment to self-care that is, you know, often requires, uh, I don't have to tell you that, a total restructuring of your life around that commitment. Uh, and then it begins to sort of trickle outwards. And, you know, I have a staggering um, divorce rate from beginning to completion of treatment in my practice. It's not something I encourage or, you know, <laughs> even necessarily have any, um, you know, sort of say in. But part of the process of sort of awakening to your own empowerment, which I have witnessed, comes with um, the medication tapering experience. 
is waking up, you know, to the circumstances of your life and saying, actually, I don't want to work this job anymore. Or actually, I hate living in this house. Or actually, this relationship no longer serves me and it's um, a container I need to break out of. So, you know, this is not a path for, you know, the the feeble, <laughs> I don't know, you know, the the faint of heart. I mean, it's it's a warrior path in many ways. Um, but I do believe that more and more women are being called to this portal to their own self-empowerment. And what I have found, again, just through observation, is that there is a, a level of consciousness that you can achieve um, when you're medicated. And then there is a whole nother part of you that is, you know, expansively exposed as you come off of medication when you're off it. And I've tried to sort of catalog this transformational process on my website through video interviews, and we have like 15 more that we're cataloging as we speak. Um, because, you know, don't take it from me, you know, take it from women who've, who've been in the trenches themselves and, you know, understand from them what it felt like to be medicated and then what it feels like to now heal their bodies and take, you know, a, a role in their experience that they had abdicated before they sort of gave away before, because, you know, when we take medication and this has been a very controversial, I don't know what perspective, uh, taking a lot of heat for this perspective, but I stand by it. You know, when we, when we, as women, when we take medication, I believe, um, we are saying no to ourselves, right? Cause why do we take medication of any kind? Because what we're feeling is either scary to us or threatening to other people. And that feeling can be, you know, pain. It can be confusion. Uh, it can be even ecstasy, you know, and it can be, you know, different forms of mania. Um, it can be some kind of spiritual, you know, um, sort of perceptual experience of, you know, um, you know, hallucinations or perceptual changes, whatever it is, our experience is not okay. And so we take medications so that we can manage the not okayness. And again, that makes sense if you're looking at it through a certain lens of potential options. But my sort of goal is to foreground one option that no one is going to ever tell you about unless you've learned about it through your own Googling, right? Through your own research, which is that actually if we just begin to look with curiosity at what's up in your life at that moment, literally from what you're eating all the way to, you know, what your spiritual beliefs are, we will begin to understand why this is happening and we can heal it and move you forward instead of just arresting you in a place of managed symptoms, if that makes sense. That absolutely does. And I know that you have no fear of tackling controversial topics. So I want to delve into one because at least from what I can look at from the outside, I think that there's a really powerful connection and that's with hormonal contraceptives. And I know like I, I talk about them pretty negatively and people are like, yeah, well, obviously, because you have six kids. I'm like, yeah, but the reason that I'm against <laughs> them is not 
I mean, there is, for me, there's personal reasons, but I think there's a huge, huge health implication there. And if you look at the statistics, I'm, I'm a huge fan of looking at trends over time. And yes. when birth control became widespread, we did see a huge rise in mental health illnesses in women. And we see much bigger numbers in women than men. And in my mind, like fertility is not a disease. We don't need to medicate against it, which doesn't mean you have to have a bazillion children. But I'd love to hear your take on this. I, well, listen, we're, we're totally on the same page. Um, I think I probably backed into, you know, your perspective, um, again, from the other side. I took birth control personally for 12 years straight. I often only, like, allowed myself to bleed two times in a calendar year because why would I be bothered by, like, my annoying period? This was literally the mentality of the kind of a feminist that I was um, at the time. And you know, when I began to research um, pharmaceuticals in this, you know, post-healing process of my own, uh, I was very interested in pharmaceutical products that are delivered to healthy people. And there aren't that many of them. Um, birth control is one of them. Vaccines are another. And there are a handful of others. But when healthy people take medication, we have to have a very, I would say, you know, refined uh, filter for how we are going to assess the risk-benefit analysis based on all of the available literature, not just the literature that the pharmaceutical companies are sharing with us, right? It's an interesting fact um, that, you know, for the approval of uh, medication, only two uh, studies are required by the FDA, right? So if you're a pharmaceutical company, you can conduct 100 studies. Once you get two, you submit them for approval. So there's a lot in the just sort of mechanics of this business that are very um, enlightening to help remind us that this is a business, right? When you go shopping for a car or for a cell phone, you're sort of like you have a healthy skepticism around all of the claims and promises because you know that it's a business and they're interested in their bottom line and they know how to sort of you know, grab you by, you know, the sort of the, you know, your pain points uh, from a marketing perspective. And we forget that when we look at the pharmaceutical industry, uh, because we have so deified, you know, doctors and medicine, it's like the last remaining religion. And we forget um, that actually they're, they're, you know, sort of deeply interwoven with a business, you know, this uh, multi-billion dollar business that is very, very good at what it does. And if you remember that it's a business, you won't be confused into thinking that, you know, you know, Pfizer or Glaxo is here for your wellness. You are here for your wellness. It's your responsibility as a consumer of, you know, products uh, to do your own homework. And that's why that mug is so hilarious, <laughs> you know, that you mentioned in the doctor's office, because, you know, that is the greatest threat to industry is that people are actually informing themselves. But what I learned when I began to research, um, birth control pill was pretty shocking to me, uh, because I understood on a basic biochemical level that we have again, scientific literature to suggest that it depletes very uh, key nutrients, particularly key nutrients like in the B vitamin family um, and antioxidants that you don't want depleted right before a pregnancy. And that's what most of us do. You know, I stopped birth control a month later, I was, I conceived. I mean, talk about an unconscious process, right? So, but that's a very common um, experience. So it depletes key nutrients. It has very significant pro-inflammatory uh, effects, largely measured by um, a blood um, messenger called CRP. 
And then there is this very interesting, as you mentioned, sort of trend of specifically mood disorders, but a trend that implicates these um, synthetic hormones in the beginning of your psychiatric career. And there was a very recent um, study that came out that actually looked at, I think, a million uh, teenage it was like a you know population-based study, million teenagers, and found a statistically alarming increase in psychiatric prescribing to those girls after they had initiated birth control. And so we know just from epidemiologic studies that this is a very real contributor. But then we have like anecdotal evidence, which I love is so, so dismissed by the establishment, but is probably the most important kind of evidence because it accounts for the many different variables that can lead up to an undesirable outcome. Um, that suggests that pretty radical stuff can happen uh, when you take different kinds of birth control, like you can, you know, develop um, episodes of um, mania. You know, you can have pretty significant changes, like to fundamental aspects of your personality. And we all know that, or hopefully we know that it has um, birth control has significant effects on your libido. And perhaps even more alarmist is the fact that there is a Russian roulette that you play when you take birth control. I mean, as I've gotten into this realm of activism. I've been contacted by countless mothers, uh, one actually who ended up completing suicide uh, at, because she couldn't tolerate the death of her own daughter to a nuva ring. You know, Karen Langhart, an incredible, intrepid activist, and her heart was completely broken, you know, when her daughter, totally healthy, I think she was 21 years old, daughter died of an embolism induced by nuva ring. And Nuvering is a, is a synthetic contraceptive um, hormone that's so convenient. You just pop it right in, right, and leave it in for three weeks. And it seems so innocent. But the, the fact that we don't have a means of identifying who is at risk in these ways means that we should probably not be prescribing them, right, until we have that means and methodology. That's my perspective. Because, you know, the, the greater concern is that we are trading something really significant when we opt into uh, pharmaceutical management of our bodies as women um, that no one is going to warn us about in informed consent. So even if you learn about all the risks I just mentioned, none of those speak to the fact that when you don't have a relationship to your body and your own hormonal balance, it's very difficult <laughs> to, to become an embodied and, and empowered woman. And this is, again, coming from someone who spent the greater part of my adult life that way. And now, you know, I use a daisy, <laughs> you know, now I use like basically a fancy thermometer for contraception. And I am 39 years old and I am just now learning about my menstrual cycle, literally, you know, because I had two babies and breastfed. And just now in my life, I am learning about what a menstrual cycle is. And it, you know, it can obviously be dismissed as sort of like woo woo, you know, spirituality to think that we should have some, um, ability to identify with the cyclical nature of our biology, but that's sort of where we learn how to work with our energy so that we don't experience ourselves as men, you know, as, as sort of like, you know, just, men with long hair and boobs, you know, that's not what we are. We are a different organism with a different connection to the natural world. And we have within us a native reservoir of power that can only be accessed when we fully embody and we heal. 
And that's a big part of what I think, you know, has to happen um, for women to understand how to relate to these very strong emotional experiences that can otherwise really be um, disabling, but are probably a part of their human experience. I love that. And I think that that's going to be an important distinction. And I think you have some great information about this. Actually, when I was looking at your site to find things to link to in the show notes, I found so many that I'm going to have to figure out how to limit it because you have so many great articles on this. <laughs> um, but another thing that you've touched on several times is the immune connection. And you've made uh, several references to the immune side of all of this and with medication. And I'd love to delve there a little bit. And if you're okay with it, I'd love to even touch on an even more controversial topic, which are vaccines. I typically steer away from them on the blog just because I feel like they're, it's almost impossible to have a civil conversation about them for most people. But the the conversations I get in in person, even with health experts and even at health conferences, um, typically it's on the very surface level of well, they don't cause autism. It's proven they don't cause autism. And this discussion is absurd to even consider if they're dangerous. And I'm like, okay, I, we can take autism out of it. What I'm looking at is we're seeing a huge rise in autoimmune disease. And you can't tell me that something that's designed to activate the immune system doesn't have an effect on the immune system. So maybe that's not the connection you were referring to, but I would love to hear what you see the role of the immune system in these problems that we're seeing and are vaccines uh, implicated there at all? So interesting that you should ask me that question, um, because I actually, and I'm happy to, you know, sort of provide this link too, but I've, I've published a paper on this exact subject. It's the only um, peer-reviewed uh, index journal um, paper on PubMed <laughs> of its kind, um, and it's called The Psychobiology of, of Vaccination. You know, I'm a psychiatrist by training. Obviously, what business do I have um, thinking I have anything to say about the immune system? Well, it, it's interesting how things have unfolded because not only, as I mentioned earlier, um, have I taken a very deep dive into immunophysiology uh, through my interest in this burgeoning field called psychoneuroimmunology. Sometimes it's called psychoneuroendocrinology, but basically, it was coined, you know, more than two decades ago now. And it refers to this connected, you know, the con connectivity uh, around gut physiology, the immune system, the endocrine system, and the psycho part is, believe it or not, thoughts, right? So it's, it's actually the ability of perception and thoughts and mindset to influence all of um, what we just mentioned. So Psychoneuroimmunology is a very radical, but again, increasingly legitimized field. It's radical because it breaks down the perceived barriers between these different branches of medicine, right? So conventional medicine is set up where you go to the neurologist for your headache and you go to the gastroenterologist for your reflux and you go, you know, to the uh, podiatrist for your you know, athlete's foot. <laughs> and, and none of those things obviously have anything to do with one another because each is a separate discipline. And that thinking is, is, you know, largely Cartesian in nature. So it's about 300 years in the making that we have thought about the body as being this sort of machine, right? As these compartmentalized areas that have different functions and they're not really, you know, sort of, they don't have an overarching, um, in, you know, interaction. And so, in my interest in psychoneuroimmunology um, and also my very vested interest as a mom, soon to be mom, I began to do my research. And it's interesting because I actually, uh, when I was very much still prescribing, so I was pregnant in my fellowship, I was prescribing to pregnant women every day. 
Um, but I took that prescribing seriously and I uh, amazingly thought I was doing a good thing. Um, so I have a lot of, um, empathy, uh, you know, for people who, who are still in the matrix, so to speak, because I know how, that you can feel like you're doing the right thing and still perhaps be, um, violating some basic ethical tenets of, of medicine. But anyway, so I, um, in the two, two flu shot years, so the swine flu and the seasonal flu shot, which was 2009, I was pregnant and I was treating pregnant women and I had two patients who had second trimester, um, stillbirths. So miscarriages in second trimester, which, you know, as you know, uh, or probably would agree is up there on, on the list of the most traumatic things that can ever happen to a woman. And, you know, as someone who was deeply invested in whether or not this was related to medications, I was pretty alarmed to learn that both of those cases had received the, the double flu shot, um, that season. And so I said, well, okay, perhaps it was related to medication I prescribed, perhaps not. Um, in these two incidences in the same season. And I said, let me look at what there is, you know, in terms of data, you know, to, to, to implicate the flu shot in this kind of an outcome. And, uh, you know, I've written a whole article about this, but it was very disturbing <laughs> what I learned, which is not only, you know, you can learn a lot from reading package inserts and, you know, to the skeptics out there, I would suggest you just start there, uh, because if a pharmaceutical company is willing to tell you about it, probably it's because they had no choice but to <laughs> tell you about it, right? So if you just look at the pack package insert, you'll learn um, that there's absolutely no safety or efficacy data um, for the flu shot, for example, in uh, the pregnant population. And so meanwhile, you know, that was one of the first years that it was becoming routinely recommended. And that was the beginning of, you know, Alice's fall down the rabbit hole for me, because I can get extremely obsessive when it comes to science. And I have actually calculated that I've put in 10,000 hours of research on the subject of, um, immunology and specifically, um, vaccines and actually believe it or not, immunology as an arm of medicine is vaccinology. That's all that immunology is, is the study of, um, vaccines. And it's largely predicated on this assumption that antibodies equal immunity. And we've moved so far past that, you know, like we have whole deep insights into innate immunity and the complexity of, um, messenger systems set up in our, you know, basic immunologic cascades that has in no way been accounted for by the science of vaccines, which is now more than 200 years old and not updated at all. Literally not updated with the discovery of the microbiome, which should totally recenter um, the whole idea of germ theory or the idea that there are bad germs out there that are going to attack you and infect you, right? That's germ theory. Um, so not accounting for the discovery of DNA. Okay. So, so there's been like some pretty important science that's come on the scene um, since the rudimentary uh, development of vaccine technology. But what happened, Katie, is that in 1986, under the pressure of lawsuits uh, that were, you know, in waves coming at the pharmaceutical industry, largely around the DPT vaccine, 
um, there was uh, an amendment that was issued to offer immunity. Basically, the pharmaceutical company said, well, we can't do this anymore because we're going to fold um, under the you know government-based recommendations for these vaccines, and we're, we're suffering too many lawsuits for injury and damage related to them, so we just can't do it. So what they did instead was that they offered immunity to uh, clinicians and to the entire industry. And then, it, of course, it became... Uh, by immunity, I mean legal immunity. Like you can't sue any longer uh, a, a drug company, even if you die on the table getting um, a vaccine. And so there's no such biological product. In fact, the only other industry that has this kind of um, immunity is the nuclear industry. And, you know, so with that came a gold rush, right? Because remember, it's a business. <laughs> and so if you don't have to really prove safety anymore, you don't have to prove efficacy, and you can just get these things on the schedule mandated to every human on earth. Well, that's pretty much exactly what happened. So now we have 69 doses of 16 vaccines. Um, delivered to, you know, children. And when I was a kid, you know, there was less than a third of that on the schedule. So that explosion has been a direct result of industry opportunity. And that is just an important context to then consider the full available science, right? So remember that there's the science that serves the bottom line of industry, and then there's more science available, right? So if you want to, as any old parent or any old interested person, um, hop onto PubMed, you would find some interesting data to support a very different story around the purported safety and efficacy of this one-size-fits-all pharmaceutical intervention. So hopefully by this point in our conversation, we can agree that there probably shouldn't be any such thing as a one-size-fits-all medical intervention for healthy people, especially if there's any signal of danger. And the government itself has acknowledged that vaccines kill and they injure. This is not theory. This is well-documented. This is legally acknowledged, and we don't know who they kill or injure, right? So in, until we do, that's a, that's a pretty big risk, uh, especially if you're of the perspective that illness is a part of living, right? And that infectious illness in specific, in, and particularly in the childhood years, probably played a pretty important role historically in toning and, you know, sort of refining our immune response, it might have had something to do with the fact that autoimmune conditions certainly didn't exist in the proportion and allergies um, in the proportion that they do today, even, you know, 60 years ago. So there's a lot more to the story. I wrote this paper just focusing on the psychiatric elements of, you know, sort of the, um, you know, cause there, it's very complex. You know, the, what happens often with vaccine injury is that people become psychiatric patients, particularly children. So they develop neuro, um, developmental impairment or ADHD or other kinds of brain-based inflammatory processes. And who comes to the rescue, right? You, you know, your friendly psychiatrist, and then they become psych patients for life. And what's even more disturbing is like in South America, there was a push to um, inject girls with the Gardasil vaccine. That's the HPV vaccine. So, and what happened was there was just like waves of, um, of neurologic um, dysfunction and injury and what happened from a media standpoint was that it was portrayed as, as um, hysteria, 
right? So this is like Freud level, <laughs> um, you know, sort of um, muzzling of women who are trying to, in some ways, blow the whistle on the fact that these, that one in particular, aluminum containing uh, vaccine is causing acute injury. I mean, there's more than 140 girls who are dead uh, because of the Gardasil vaccine. And, and, and instead of acknowledging that and seeking to research it and study it, what happened there? Like, did they have anything in common? Was there any evidence on blood, you know, analysis that we could identify, you know, what happened there? No, they were silenced and they were told that they were, um, hysterical. You know, it's just sort of the oldest form of misogyny is, um, sort of being bred through the, um, suppression of this information. And, you know, listen, Anytime something is such a hot topic that we can't even talk about it, understand that there's probably more to the story. There's any scientist will tell you that there is no such thing as science being settled. The definition of science is that is it is an evolving inquiry. And when you, you know, proclaim that it's settled, you're probably doing so um, because the answers that might be arrived at through a greater investigation are inconvenient uh, to some bottom line that you're protecting. I really love your perspective on that. I feel like you have a really deep understanding of it. And it drives me crazy when I hear people say like, no, it's scientifically proven that vaccines are safe. And I'm like, nothing in that sentence is actually true. But um, I think that's a really important point. And I love that you're very balanced on this. You're not saying unequivocally like vaccines are absolutely horrible, but that you think that parents should take a thoughtful and um, research-backed approach, which I think no matter what the issue is, all of us can learn from doing that in any aspect of our life. Do you love the taste and the benefits of bone broth, but don't love how time-consuming it is to make? With the time you spend sourcing the best ingredients and then simmering it for hours on end on the stove? Kettle and Fire solves that problem with their bone broth. So they use only bones from 100% grass-fed pasture-raised cattle that are never given hormones and antibiotics. It's also unique because they focus on bones that are especially high in collagen, which is one of the healthiest things you can put in your body. Another great thing about them is they use really eco-friendly minimal packaging and their bone broth is non-perishable. So unlike many bone broths on the market, it ships without the need for refrigeration, which is also much more eco-friendly. It is available in many stores, so definitely check your local area. But if it's not, like it isn't for me, you can order it online and have it shipped to your door, which is what I do. So to check it out and to find out more about why their bone broth is so wonderful, go to kettleandfire.com forward slash wellness mama. This episode is sponsored by Plant Therapy. There are so many options out there when it comes to essential oils, and I've used a lot of them over the years. Now I most often turn to Plant Therapy because they have a large assortment of organic oils and a whole lot of kid-safe blends, and they also have really good prices. The cool thing is their oils have no additives or synthetic ingredients like a lot of oils do, and they publish their testing results for all of their oils so you can verify the quality. I've talked a lot about the safe use of essential oils, and their KidSafe blends are formulated by Robert Tizarand, who's largely considered one of the foremost experts in essential oil safety, so I feel like I can trust him. If you want to check them out, especially right now, they're running some big sales that are changing daily. Go to wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash oils to get all the current discounts. Another area that you talk about, if, uh, if you have time to talk about it, is plastics. And you have this, I think, mentioned it in a post you have about 
five things you can do to help your kids be healthy. Um, and that's definitely one of my soapboxes is plastic. So let's talk about plastic. What's your stance on that? I probably learned a lot of what I know from you <laughs> personally. I mean, uh, yeah, I think that it's it's been an interesting thing to sort of investigate the ways that we've um, strayed from the the path of our optimal wellness as humans um, in service of conveniences and ease and comfort, right? Because so many of the things that you and I talk about, you know, whether it's medications or, you know, the, the use of pesticides or, you know, the use of plastics, all of these interventions seemed like a really good idea at one point in time, right? It seemed like a way to either outsmart the inconveniences of nature, um, to make our lives simpler, you know, faster, better, more comfortable, to take away, you know, struggle, to eliminate fear, you know, so you'll find a theme in all of these interventions that I have sought to bring under um, a greater lens of scrutiny you'll find that mentality behind them. And it, at some point in time, it made sense. But the problem is that industry has become so powerful and unfortunately so unchecked by government and media that we are, we are in a position of having to educate ourselves through the primary science on our own. And, you know, it's actually been, you know, quite a number of years that we have good insight into the dangers and endocrine disrupting um, impacts specifically of, of plastics. And I would include, you know, pesticides um, sort of just, just, you know, next in, in that sentence. Um, and unfortunately we could be the last to know if we wait for industry to tell us. And what industry often does is they just sort of, engage this bait and switch, right? So we, we learned, we're learning uh, a lot about BPA, for example, and particularly in pregnancy, um, our susceptibility and vulnerability on an epigenetic level to the impact of, of BPA. And so what does industry do? They just sort of sub in uh, a lesser implicated, um, in my opinion, equivalent, you know, in the form of BPS. And you could be assured by their marketing, you know, that says, oh, this is BPA free. Like it's um, probably absolutely fine. Like they got the message that BPA is so dangerous, but it's probably uh, only a matter of time before we learn as much about BPS, for example, as we know about BPA. So I think that it often comes down to something that I, I mean, you're, you're so expert in this. Um, it comes down to sort of trying to align with ancestral wisdom, you know, sort of like the wisdom of our um, foremothers and trying to get as close as we can on a daily basis to the way that things have been done, you know, for, for at least some period of our tradition. And, you know, that's where looking at the conveniences, whether it's food-based or otherwise, of the past 150 years, it's probably reasonable to suspect that there's going to be a downside. I, I was just saying the other day to a friend of mine, I was like, you know what, we, uh, oh, because we were, oh, I know what it was. My daughter was doing some, like, project on the Pacific Ocean, and so we were, like, doing a little noodling around the internet on it. We were looking at the Pacific, like, the garbage patch, you know, it's, like, floating the size of like Texas or whatever it is in the Pacific ocean. 
and I just, you know, you get this like feeling, this like ache in your heart of, of how wrong, you know, how just wrong this is, what we're doing. And we we're just talking about how, why don't we just get rid of plastic altogether? Why don't we just commit, you know, to the sacrifice as a society and just sort of see what happens? You know, it, it might be that we have, you know, sort of the opportunity to generate, you know, sort of a new a new emerging discovery that's going to be in harmony with the natural world in a way that plastic isn't. But I know it's a very theoretical consideration, but it just strikes me as such a massive issue that it only makes sense that our bodies are saying no to it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think everything you've spoken to, and I could seriously talk to you forever about all this stuff, (laughs) it really all boils down to what I seem like is a core principle of what you write in your mission, which is that there is no one size fits all, but really empowering people to learn and figure out what their personalized personalized solutions are and to become an advocate for that. So I want to kind of, can we steer it towards there now and talk about how do people find this? I feel like a lot of times it's you feel very disempowered. It seems helpless at times when you have any kind of a health problem to try to find answers. And I know, I don't know what your Hashimoto story was, but mine took years and eight doctors before I could find answers. And I think a lot of people are stuck in that cycle. So what is your advice uh, for finding your own personalized medicine and becoming an advocate for yourself? Yes. I mean, I definitely uh, believe that people, if you're open, people find exactly the information that they need to heal themselves. I, you know, I was speaking at a conference recently and it was like an essential oil, you know, sort of like fanatic conference. (laughs) I didn't even know that until I showed up there. And, you know, there were people who literally got themselves out of wheelchairs with essential oils. You know, I use essential oils at home. I'm, you know, a huge fan of them, but do I use it to resolve chronic treatment resistant schizophrenia in my practice? No, it's not a big part of my approach. So I have to believe that you find what it is that resonates with you on all levels and what will ultimately work for you, whether that's nutrition based or energy medicine, or maybe, I don't know, I have to leave room for conventional medicine. But um, my approach is definitely to begin you know, uh, with this online program, I have vital mind reset. The whole point of it was, I don't, I'm pretty sure I'm not a necessary ingredient in this process. Um, I, you know, I don't have any special gifts or magical powers. And basically all I'm doing is giving people information that they already know, you know, it's like reminding them of what they already know, but setting up a um, structure for commitment to self care that may be a little bit beyond their comfort zone. And, I'm a big believer in self-healing. So so the first like month of my approach, whether it's in my practice or online, is totally self-driven. You know, and, and it's meant to give you an experience in your body of what you can feel like under certain controlled circumstances, right? So it's a specific um, dietary approach, which is not anything that radical. Um, but it's, you know, uh, controversially in some fields and particularly in sort of the yogic fields that I intersect with, it's a, a red meat, um, relatively red meat heavy diet. It is uh, daily meditation, three minutes a day. I'm a Kundalini yoga practitioner. So I, happen to be biased in that realm, but I don't care if you pray to a leprechaun for three minutes. It has to be three minutes every single day. Um, I worked with um, 
had the deep privilege of being mentored by the now late Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez, who was a holistic um, cancer doctor here in New York, who had outcomes that have never been matched in medical history uh, that were based on a protocol that had three prongs to it. One was a personalized diet. Um, so he helped reify for me this idea that there is not one diet for everyone. He had 10 diets in his practice. He also helped me to understand why the diet that I tend to recommend seems to work for the people who come to me with um, autoimmune conditions and multiple chemical sensitivities and uh, diagnoses of ADHD and suicidal depression, for example, hypothyroidism. So um, it was diet, coffee enemas, the notorious coffee enemas and uh, supplementation. And I have since, you know, refined my protocol to um, incorporate his teachings and my outcomes are uh, like through the roof since that. And I don't know if it's because I, he, to me, he was like Jesus figure literally in my life. And I just have never been so inspired by anyone in, in my lifetime. And so perhaps having the opportunity to work with him infuse me with some kind of an enthusiasm and passion for the fact that there are no carve outs. I mean, he treated people who were literally left for dead on hospice with metastatic terminal cancers, including pancreatic cancer, which is what he's most known for. And 35 years later, they're still alive. You know, I, I run into them on the street or, you know, sometimes at conferences, they come up to me and say, oh, we were patients of Dr. Gonzalez's. Anyway, so he is extraordinary and helped me to cement my passion for holistic medicine. Uh, but my sort of, you know, thinking is if you recruit these pillars all at once and you commit for one month, um, and of course, part of the diet is taking out, you know, potentially addictive um, brain influencing foods, things, you know, like um, refined sugar and coffee and alcohol, wheat and dairy, for example. Um, and, and you just have that experience for, for one month then often your body begins to wake up, your body begins to feel something is possible, and then everything starts to unfold from there. So I don't taper medications at all, not one milligram, before this month is complete. And I've learned the hard way, trust me, I used to taper you know, right off the bat, and I never, ever, ever do that. I do not recommend that under any circumstances. And I am a big believer in the fact that everyone should have the opportunity to taper their medications if they are curious about, you know, what life could be like, uh, without them, but I don't ever do it before that. And so I, I, I think that there's some synergy in sending the body a signal of safety from all of these different efforts. And perhaps even in the ritual of engaging and prioritizing your self-care every single day in this way that can be time consuming and, you know, sort of resource consuming, uh, perhaps the commitment alone is healing, but then you get to a baseline where you can begin to explore um, what it is that you really are working with and how can you further optimize and refine it and personalize it from there. And often, you know, right? Like often you are the one who is in the best position to personalize that journey, uh, but you have to get clear enough to begin to get those intuitive messages about, you know, what's right for you. And it's pretty hard to get, you know, that clear if, if you're, body is struggling against all of these toxicant exposures and, you know, processed foods, et cetera. And, you know, while I am focused on, um, diagnoses of mental illness, you know, I had a, I did an interview with a woman who completed my program who has no psych history at all. She had, um, 
chronic migraines, the worst I've ever heard of in my life or, or entire practice. I never heard of anything like this that lasted like her. She said her longest one was 89 days. She was treated by one of the top neurologists at Emory and she was on five medications just to manage her migraines, had to go in for IV treatment. And now she's four months, I think, out from this very basic program. And she's totally migraine free off medication for the first time in two years. <laughs> so I can't explain this. Doesn't make any sense, right? Like, why would these simple interventions have such a dramatic yield? I don't know. But maybe when you apply them all at once in the setting of community, because there is a community element to my online program that my patients don't have. And I'll tell you that my online outcomes are better faster, more robust, more miraculous than my in-person appointments, which cost, uh, I don't know, like two orders of magnitude more money. Um, and the only difference is that is the community element. So, you know, I think you would agree, you know, hosting a community as you do, that there's something so empowering, so healing to just be in a space of like minds um, to feel supported and to feel seen, you know, who knows, maybe that's really the only thing that's having the, the impact, but you know, it's, there's certainly a limitation to, um, what is possible in the medication model. And I think some of it has to do with where you're giving your power away and generating an opportunity for you to sort of take it back. I love that. Totally. And you have a book, uh, Change Your Food, Heal Your Mood, for anybody who really wants the specifics. And you mentioned you have programs on your website. I'll link to those as well. Um, but to wrap up, I want to have you speak to something that I know is a true passion for you. And you've talked about it a little bit and woven it in, but like the idea of taking back the true meaning of feminism and becoming advocates for ourselves. And you've mentioned community several times, which I think is an incredibly important key now that we live in a world that's very um, the idea of community is just social media, and we've kind of moved ourselves from what were true, like physical communities. Um, in fact, that's actually one of my biggest struggles. My husband and I talk about this often is wanting to find a place with a true community where you can be around people that are at least like-minded in one aspect, you know, that you can have that kind of relationship on that level. And we're in a world, like you've mentioned, with really high rates of medication for mental illness and really actually terrible infant and maternal mortality rates. And rising rates of autoimmune disease and all these huge problems. And I love that your mission is very much one of hope. So to wrap up, can you kind of, uh, I'd love for you just to speak to what your message of hope and encouragement is for women and kind of what your core uh, encouragement or recommendations would be. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I'd love to just briefly mention um, a really important, uh, I think very important study. I actually just um, published a blog on alcoholism that is Gosh, I mean, I just can't shut my mouth up. <laughs> it just keeps, I keep like uh, poking the bear. And it's been extremely controversially received. I didn't even, I wasn't even aware that, you know, people would um, take such issue with my perspective on it. But one of my, you know, sort of one thing I wanted people to at least consider because it was very interesting to me, you know, right? Because, because alcoholism, for example, is like a total example of genetic determinism. We think it's genetic disease. You have it for life and your only option is to um, avoid alcohol forever, right? So the alcohol is given this power over you. In fact, that's the first of the 12 steps is that you're powerless. And obviously you can hear that it's a thread throughout all of my um, cultivated perspectives that actually you're never powerless. And, and if you take radical responsibility to, to understand your relationship to these different elements of your life, where you are wounded, where you have not been you know, seen, um, how it is that you're not 
fully expressed? You know, where are the places in your life that are out of balance? What are you running from? You know, when you, when you start to look at those big questions, which I, I feel it's a lot easier to do when your body is, you know, healed. Um, so that's why I like to foreground, you know, sort of physical healing. But um, there's this study from the, from the 70s by this guy, Bruce Alexander, and it's called the Rat Park Experiment. And I don't know if you've heard of it, but basically in a nutshell, he puts uh, a rat in a cage by itself, uh, gives it cocaine or water. And what will happen is the rat will um, drink the cocaine and drink it, drink it, drink it until it dies. Okay, well, that's obvious, right? Because cocaine is a dangerous, addictive sub substance and and obviously it got its chemical hooks in the rat and the rat has no choice but to submit and, and until it dies, right? It's dangerous. So what he, what he ultimately found out was that, you know, there's something fishy about that context, right? Like that's not real life for that rat. And so what if we put the rat in what he called um, rat heaven or like a rat park where it has toys and a little wheel and other rats to have sex with and socialize with and it's a community of rats. And then you offer um, that rat cocaine or water. Turns out, they don't touch the cocaine. That's interesting. Okay, so what if you addict a rat in isolation and then you put it into rat park? Obviously, it's going to choose to, you know, not detox voluntarily. And in fact, that's exactly what they chose to do. They detox voluntarily, never touched it again. So the suggestion there is that what we are um, describing as a chemical process and a disease-based, you know, sort of um, experience may actually have a lot more to do with some of the fundamental elements of our humanity, in this case, um, that have fallen away. And that if a rat needs community that badly, odds are that we do too. And so in our modular homes, you know, in our box living, something is bound to feel really wrong. And we are bound to want to self-medicate that felt wrongness in myriad ways, you know, whether it's compulsive gambling or actual medications. What I'd like to suggest is exactly what you're intuiting, which is first just say, it's probably okay that I feel a wrongness, right? That something feels like it hurts deep inside me. And that's probably okay. And maybe it's a totally natural response to what's going on in this planet today and to the way we've evolved socioculturally, you know, as a species. And then the next step is, is to just begin to open yourself to these connections, right? To, to the prospect that there are people out there who think like you, you know, who, who are interested in looking at life through the lens that you do. And what I find is that they just sort of get magnetized towards us, you know, that we make these connections, even this conversation, you know, we make these connections with people who, who see life the way we do, and it helps us to feel more um, okay, you know, and I also would argue that embracing um, the struggle and, and suffering and pain that's a part of life, if you actually allow yourself to move through those waves of life, that helps you then to be there for other people who are in, you know, those birth canals, so to speak, when you're not. So that helps relume the fabric of our connection, right? When you can deeply empathically relate to someone and say, you know what, I have so been there. And it gets better, <laughs> you know, just ride the wave. It gets better. When you can say that from an authentic experience, lived experience, that helps to rebuild this fabric of empathy that we've begun to break down in, in this every man or every woman for themselves kind of 
capitalistic um, culture. So I, I listen, I'm with you. I haven't found that community. I became near obsessed with it. You know, this, I was like, where can I drag my kids? I need to find, you know, an intentional community where people think the way I do and, and eat the way I do and care about the things I do. And, you know, I don't know that I've ever heard of it's really being out there, but perhaps in the meantime, we just work to, um, hold this space on our own so that we can call these kinds of connections into our lives, even if they're, even if they're virtual, you know, I have to think that's a part of it. And that living in the world with people who don't agree with you living in the world with people who think you're crazy and, and judge your choices is a part of, you know, the process. It's a part of, uh, confirming on some level that you do feel you trust yourself, even in the face of, you know, sort of adversity or criticism or judgment, but it's definitely a work in progress. It's why I, became a, you know, a Kundalini yoga teacher because there's a community there. And you know, it's so funny and I'll, and I'll stop talking in a second, but it's so funny because the first year I went to the studio downtown in New York, they gave, they like gave me a little card, right? They gave everyone like a little card and it just said, it was like a, I don't know, a coupon or something in it for the little store. And in the card, it said, thank you for being a part of our community. And I literally started crying when I read this stupid generic card because that's how big this wound is for me. You know, that's how isolated I have felt, I guess, you know, for, for as long as I have. And, and so it doesn't take much to begin to feel, you know, I've been in a room with 50 women and it takes us like 10 minutes, (laughs) you know, to, to begin to feel healed on some level, you know, in this way, but it's a very real issue. And sometimes just being aware of it, begins the process of, of transforming it. I think you're so right. And maybe like we'll have to just eventually build this community because I haven't found it either. But I think you're right that even just small things like um, we have a girls night here where a bunch of moms will get together and even just a couple hours like that, it is, it's very healing. And like you feel this bond and this like energy after that, that you don't normally have. So maybe that's the answer in the short term. But what I love so much about your approach is that when everybody else is you know, saying how to escape from the symptoms and how to avoid all the pain, like you're actually encouraging people to like lean in and to understand why and to let that become, uh, help you get towards deeper relationships and deeper understanding and to get to the why. Because I think maybe that's the missing link too, is that um, it's easy to know what to do and what to eat. But if you don't have that why and the like love for yourself and those around you, then you're not going to stick with it. And in doing that, you're also becoming a great example for your children. So I love that that's your, um, your mission so much. I appreciate that. And and you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly it. Awesome. Well, I want to make sure people can find you because I'm sure there are a lot of people who are going to want to connect with you. So I'll link to everything in the show notes, but where can people find you online? I am just at kellybroganmd.com and do my best to uh, you know, put out some scientifically vetted, but potentially controversial material on a regular basis. And, uh, we're in the process uh, of putting my, uh, book, a mind of your own, which is a book, um, I published last year for free in all parts on my website. In the meantime, we have a free ebook that I meant that you mentioned earlier and all of the levels of resources are there to, you know, if this resonates with you, we've got you, you know, it's totally possible. And I'm doing my best to document outcomes so that you can hear from women other than me, uh, you know, what kinds of radical um, healing transformations are really possible. 
I love it. And again, all those links will be in the show notes. I think if people land on your blog, they'll want to read pretty much everything because that's what I did. Uh, But I appreciate so much the work that you're doing and the research you're doing and all the articles that you're sharing and especially your time in being here. This has been an awesome interview, one of my favorite, and I hope maybe we'll have a round two one day. Wonderful. Such an honor. Thanks so much, Katie. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening. And I'll see you next time on the Healthy Moms Podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time. And thanks as always for listening.